It's 3 p.m. Stay tuned now for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is, let's see, the 26th Halloween approaches. All Hallows' Eve, boys and girls. <laughs> I, just, I just bought a giant pumpkin for a friend of mine. She has a large dog. I want her to put the pumpkin around the dog and call him the Great Pumpkin. I like to have new gods every year, something, something we can label. I, I was trying to think of some way to synthesize Halloween with this election that's coming up, but uh, I hit the wall with that. I made some sad little notes on witchcraft. You remember Wicca, the wise women and witchcraft? Uh then I made a list of all the things we're supposed to do about the election, and then I gave up. We must do the best we can. I'm afraid I don't have any creative ideas. Uh, I just hope that, well, let's just hope that there is at least some consciousness raising going on. I can't stand it anymore. I just look at all those TV ads and I think of all that money being spent. Uh, oh dear. Think, think, think what we could do in a utopian world. Uh, in a utopian world, the candidate that gives the most money to the good causes, that would be our leader, our ruler. You know, the guy or the woman who raises more money for schools and hospitals and uh, all the good stuff, all the stuff on the uh, positive side of the list, you know. If they could raise millions, tens of millions of dollars for the public welfare, the public good, the common cause, then they get to be the prez or whatever it is they want to be. Nowadays, of course, um, all that money goes to, I guess, PR people? I don't know. Most of it goes to the mass media? I guess the money, I guess it buys somebody's dinner somewhere, but it just seems to me so, um, what's the word, uh, so negative, so unhuman. Uh, I'm not sure whether good works have gone out of fashion completely, obviously not. Some of our multimillionaires uh, get out their wallets and look very uh, respectable, but somehow or another that doesn't quite compute. Uh, 
several of my friends have let me know that the only thing that matters this time around with the elections is Proposition 19. I tend to agree. Uh, there's another one. It's a no-brainer. We all know that uh, this whole business of pot or marijuana, it's, it's just, it gives me so much grief I can't even talk about it. Once upon a time, years ago, we had a wonderful doctor here at KPFA. Mike Alcolay was his name. Uh, Michael uh, fought AIDS for many years, and he uh, he's no longer with us. And I remember, I remember when he died, I thought, well, you know, now someone will jump on the bandwagon and carry the banner, you know, and make everybody understand what nonsense there is around this issue. But, of course, that didn't happen. And I certainly didn't do it because I'm not sure whether I qualify. I'm certainly not a doctor. Uh, all I know is what I read in the papers and what everybody I've ever met tells me, which is that uh, this is all about the money. You remember, there was something when I was a... Well, before I was born, there was something called prohibition. They decided that, uh, you know, alcohol was destroying the American family, which was true enough. Uh, and uh, so the day I was born, they, uh, they passed a, a constitutional amendment and they ended prohibition. Let's see, that was in 1933 in December. Awesome, awesome, 77 years ago this December. Everybody got drunk. My mother said they brought her gin in a finger bowl in the hospital there in Tucson, Arizona. Anyway, we know that, uh, what is that? That prohibition or the uh, outlawing of the, cons of the selling of alcohol just caused problems and, uh, uh, obviously made money for gangsters. Check out the new wonderful HBO television series, the one about the boardwalk down in Atlantic City. It's called Boardwalk Empire. All about the, uh, the rackets. The rackets. I love it. <laughs> They've even got a juvenile Al Capone in the show. Uh, I like the spins on the women. And uh, there's an awful lot of good historical stuff. It's dated 1920 when the women had just uh, managed to get the vote. And there's a lot of fuss going on. Uh, I'm confused. I meant to look it up this morning, but one of the women in the show, she's an Irish immigrant from County Kerry. I guess she's the leading character. She's a good woman so far. Well, sort of good. But she's become the mistress of the main character she has two children to support and as she says to a woman that she confides in a woman who runs the women's temperance league she says to the woman she says but he 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 runs things and he will provide that's about all it took in 1920 i guess anyway uh <laughs> the uh, the <laughs> the issue of the women in 1920, 
is a, a little different than the issues that women have today, but not really very much. Um, I'm sure that show, sooner or later, you'll be able to get it on, um, you know, a DVD or something. But if you have cable, HBO, check out uh, Boardwalk Empire. I find it fascinating. That's just because uh, I'm a history buff. And I was upset because the woman who plays that part, the woman from County Kerry in Ireland, she said to someone in one of the scenes, she said that the women where she came from had had the vote for some years. Now, I think she's wrong. I don't remember uh, the dates, but it seems to me that the women in Ireland didn't get the vote till very late in the game, something like the 60s. Anyway, i got to look it up. If there's anybody in our audience who knows, when did women get the vote in Ireland? i got to check it out. I'll go find a computer and figure it out. Uh, obviously, I, I think she didn't have any right to do one-upmanship. But uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, I know that uh, when we have the next election, when it's uh, next Tuesday, uh, Proposition 19... We'll straighten everything out and all will be well and there won't be any more of this uh, absurd incarceration of young people. Uh, it has been a real crime against humanity. We all know that. Uh, it's just that, what is it? Uh, I don't know what it takes. All the police chiefs, I think everybody has said, yes, 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 it's time. It's time to end the madness. But, uh, uh Keep your fingers crossed, folks. Anyway, we have to celebrate Halloween even before, even before. But, oh, there's something I want to read to you before I leave the election. I found something last night. I thought it was funny. It's a short story or a little tiny snippet short story from Gustave Flaubert, the French writer. It's uh, just a little snippet from a letter he wrote. Oh, uh, no. Flaubert wrote back in the, uh, what is it? I guess this would be the, the not the mid-19th century, probably a little earlier. Anyway, uh, there's a new translation of his famous book, Madame Bovary, written by Lydia Davis, translated, pardon me, translated. And uh, that book is available, and I haven't read it yet. It's a new translation of Madame Bovary. It came out in September, Viking Press. But she also adapted some of his letters. And this is a letter, well, several letters written to his lover, Louise Collet. Uh, he was working on Madame Bovary at the time. And uh, let's see. Uh, here's what he wrote. This is funny. This is about elections. Uh uh, he's talking about, well, he, he's always talking about the madness at the gates, all the uh, problems they were having in France. Anyway, he he writes, the cook's lesson. Today, writes Gustave Flaubert, I have learned a great lesson. Our cook was my teacher. She is 25 years old. She's French. I discovered that she does not know that Louis Philippe is no longer king of France. And that we now have a republic. Yet it has been five years since Louis Philippe left the throne. 
She said, the fact that he is no longer king simply does not interest her in the least. Those were her words. And I think of myself as an intelligent man. Compared to her, I am an imbecile. <laughs> I was thinking of a scene in that TV series I was telling you about, that wonderful series, Boardwalk Empire. One of the overbearing, officious uh, rich men turns to his maidservant and older black woman and he uh, asks her about uh, oh things she would vote for that kind of thing and she says to him she says oh commodore i am not versed in these matters exactly uh what earthly use would it be to someone in her position uh of course as i said before the possibility for consciousness raising for education is out there, folks. I keep thinking there must be a way for left-wing pundits, even left-wing intellectuals, pardon the expression, to communicate to the population, to the masses of people, just a little tiny bit of reality. You know, some connection between who we vote for and how our lives how our lives change. I know that, you know, if we could connect the dots and tie the, uh, tie the bows, the threads, uh, most people would get it. There is a, an unbelievable, unbelievable predilection on the part, on the part of most voters to vote against their own best interests. I don't know why that is. I think it's because, as we keep saying over and over again, most Americans think that they, too, could be rich. They, too, could be millionaires, billionaires. So they don't want to tax the rich because they, of course, will become the rich in their imaginations. You know how that goes. So interesting, human psychology. Actually, I can't resist. I was going to read you something about Halloween, but I am tempted. Uh, I am tempted... Just for fun, I'm tempted to read you something more uh, uh, huh, from Flaubert, just because he's so fascinating. Uh, hmm. Oh, dear. He says, uh, yes, he says, he, well, let me, let me read you something called The Coachman and the Worm. This, it isn't, <laughs> it isn't really on the subject, but it's the sort of thing that I think it's the difference between now and the 19th century. There is a little difference, a little, a little. Now, uh, Flaubert writes, The coachman and the worm. A former servant of ours, a pathetic fellow, is now the driver of a hackney cab. You'll probably remember how he married the daughter of that porter who was awarded a prestigious prize at the same time that his wife was being sentenced to penal servitude for theft, whereas he, the porter, was actually the thief. In any case, this unfortunate man, Tolet, our former servant, has, or thinks he has, a tapeworm inside him. 
He talks about it as though it were a living person who communicates with him and tells him what it wants. When Tollet is talking to you, the word he always refers to is this creature inside him. Sometimes he has a sudden urge and he attributes it to the tapeworm. He says, he wants it. And right away, the man, Tollet, obeys. Lately, he wanted to eat some fresh white rolls. Another time, he had to have some white wine. But the next day, he was outraged because he wasn't given red. Now, the poor man uh, has lowered himself in his own eyes to the same level as the tapeworm. They are equals waging a fierce battle for dominance. He said to my sister-in-law lately, That creature has it in for me. It's a battle of wills, you see. He's forcing me to do what he likes, but I'll have my revenge. Only one of us will be left alive. Well, the man is the one who will be left alive, or rather not for long, because in order to kill the worm, to be rid of it, he recently swallowed a bottle of vitriol and is at this very moment... Dying. I wonder if you can see the true depths of this story. What a strange thing it is. The human brain. Now, there you see in that little, um, that little letter, a uh, little excerpt from one of Gustave Flaubert's letter, th- that's one of the places he might have gotten the ending for um, Madame Bovary. You remember that she is a woman of sin, a fallen woman, and she um, swallows poison arsenic and kills herself because she has to drive out the bad things inside her. This man he's describing uh, has let his wife go to prison for him, And so he knows that inside of him he has a worm, a tapeworm in this case. And uh, what was once called a conversion syndrome, yes, uh, could have been diagnosed in our age. And at least he would have known what was wrong with him. But I just think it's very interesting uh, where Flaubert went to get his ideas. Never mind. If you like that sort of thing, you know, little bits and pieces of... Uh, the Minds of Great Writers. You can find it, let's see, Lydia Davis. She has a new a new translation of Madame Bovary is out. And these bits, these little short stories, bits of fiction, well, they're, they're uh, letters, actually, can be found in the November issue of Harper's Magazine. That's November of this year, 2010. Harper's Magazine, Five Stories from Flaubert by Lydia Davis. She adapted these from uh, Flaubert's letters. They're just fascinating. There are several more uh, that I would like to read to you. I'll put them aside and save them because life in the 19th century was just about as fascinating as life in the 21st. (laughs) Anyway, Halloween's coming. Halloween. Can't miss it. I looked it up in my favorite woman's book, woman's tome. It's called The Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets. 
by Barbara G. Walker. You can find it in any good woman's bookstore. Actually, I don't know where it is anymore, but I bought this copy in the 1980s. And uh, uh, it may be, you know, that feminism, <laughs> feminism, maybe, maybe all this stuff. What is it? Somebody said, oh, that's a period piece, you know. Anyway, uh I love this stuff, and some of it has been incorporated, uh, let's see, uh, it, let's say it colors some of our ideas. Now, this, all this uh, notion of the feminine side of things, uh, we know that all the old pagan holidays were basically uh, part of the old religion, give me that old-time religion, the old pagan good stuff. Uh, I am particularly fond of Halloween because it's such a hippie holiday, not just pagan, but, you know, if anybody was a pagan, it was the hippies, the uh, counterculture. They were such fun. Uh, (laughs) There's still a lot of fun. Right. Uh, Let's see what they have under Halloween. Uh, We all know that the Christian fathers were very busy trying to... uh, trying to get rid of all of that stuff. They said it was a survival of the Druid religion, which, of course, wasn't that at all. A Druid religion uh, isn't nearly as old as the goddess religion. Let's see now. Where is our... uh, Where is the bit about... about uh, Halloween? Let me skip, since I'm short on time. Let me skip to the bit on witchcraft. I had a smidgen of something on Halloween on my Thursday morning spot. Check that out day after tomorrow, before Thanksgiving, yes. Before uh, Halloween, uh, yes. Uh, all of the customs, you know, the owls and the cats and the apple bobbing and all that stuff. I listed some of those for uh, my show on Thursday morning, but the accusation of witchcraft is the thing that... Uh, interests me the most because, of course, that was part of the war on the feminine. There were, of course, many healers and uh, witches who were male, masculine. It's a, it's a principle, folks, not a gender. Um, anyway, the magic men were burned as well. Uh, anyway, when it was used as a form of punishment, it was usually used on women who were too vocal, you know, the ones who talked about their disillusionment with men, you know, they preferred to live alone. My favorite is the woman who lives in that house, you know, just on the edge of town. Historical literature has many references to the joy with which women after widowhood set up their own households, the vigor with which they resisted being courted by amorous widowers. However, the solitary life left a woman even more vulnerable to accusations of witchcraft, since men usually thought she must be somehow controlled. See, now that's what D.H. Lawrence always said. He said, women out of control are the very devil. (laughs) Anyway, those who tortured the unfortunate defendant into admitting witchcraft used a euphemistic language. They showed that the victim was condemned, you know, before she spoke. Uh, Okay. 
Catherine Delort, here's one. She was forced to confess by the means we have power to use to make people speak the truth, and then they go on to give oh, detailed descriptions of the tortures used. Ah, I don't want to talk about the tortures. It's just too heartbreaking because, of course, that has not ended. Perhaps it never will. Um, let's go through the 16th century, the 17th century. Take your pick whether the Catholic Church was worse than the Protestant Reformation. Uh, any woman who criticized church policies was definitely a witch. Uh, hmm. Some of the women were allied with the good guys. Let's see. There were good guys reforming Franciscans in the 14th century. Uh-huh. Oh, dear. Uh, I don't know. Too many, too many, too many of the writings from that time insist that women are just naturally inclined to witchcraft. You know, it's just sort of goes with the gender. Uh, up to the 15th century, women's charms and spells, so-called, were virtually the only repository of practical medicine. Churchmen avoided doctoring on the ground that all sickness came from demonic possession. The only cure was exorcism. <laughs> anyway, the more I read this stuff, the more depressed I get. And I don't want to talk about the crimes against women, uh, especially when it had to do with medicine, because there were so many women who, if they had been allowed to practice their art, would have been able to save lives, particularly uh, to help children to be teachers. Uh, the doctors, of course, were chiefly available to the rich, which means that sometimes, sometimes, the poor were better off because they took their troubles to the local witch. Irish farmers still say that they need a fairy doctor, you know, for a charm against the evil eye. In Greece, both priests and witches are available for emergencies. Priest burns incense and recites appropriate prayers, and the witch burns incense and recites appropriate prayers. Da 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 da. <laughs> anyway, oh, I love this stuff. Uh, it's all interpreted by different churchmen. Uh, uh, witchcraft, let's see, in the Christian era of course, became a heresy. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they did allow a little bit, a little bit of practice. Uh, it was a crime, and yet uh, they felt that possibly witches controlled the weather with God's permission. So sometimes they did ask these women for help. English law was fairly tolerant of witchcraft until the reign of James I. Hmm, sorcery, on and on she goes. I'm thinking of, I have a list, believe it or not, of Hollywood movies in which we see the feminine side of uh, witchcraft. Some of them aren't so bad. Most of them are completely, what's that, uh, phallocentric or male-centered. Uh, the prisoners who found themselves condemned to death usually shrieked aloud that they had been tricked, uh, especially if they confessed, as the Inquisitors wanted, you know, the old game. Uh, 
If they confessed to witchcraft, they would be burned. If they didn't confess, they would be tortured to death. <laughs> Witch hunting became a major industry uh, at one point. That's when it supported the incomes of people. That's when it got, what is it? Uh, that's when it got, uh, it was industrial. Uh, victims were charged. They had to pay money for the very ropes that bound them. And they had to uh, buy the wood that burned them. Each procedure of torture carried a fee. After the execution of a wealthy witch, officials usually treated themselves to a banquet at the expense of the victim's estate. There you go. You see, now it's interesting because there would be motivation to burn the rich as well as the poor. Uh, the witch, the poor were burned because it was assumed that... Uh, God had deserted them. Now, I haven't got time, oh dear. I had all these wonderful prayers for Halloween night. Yes, it is the, the point at which, yes, the world cracks. And all kinds of things come through at midnight on Sunday the 31st of October. I'm going to sit up with my cat, Dementia, and wait for the ghosts, for my ancestors to come down and tell me what's the next thing that we should all do. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Chris Hedges, Noam Chomsky, Reza Aslan, and many other intellectuals have strongly praised the work of Nir Rosen, author of the just-published Aftermath, following the bloodshed of America's wars in the Middle East. This indispensable feat of reporting follows on the ground the contagious spread of radicalism and sectarian violence unleashed in the Muslim world by the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Rosen regularly contributes to the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post, and the New York Times Magazine. He'll appear in a KPFA benefit